the National Archives podcast series, The Silken Paper Trail, Openness and the National Collective Memory, presented by Lord Hennessy and Professor Lisa Jardine. Well, welcome. Thank you very much, all of you, uh, for coming. Those of you who managed to make it through the uh, bus strike um, and the Friday traffic, um, it is very good to have you here. Today, as an event, is something we've been looking forward to for a while. There are really two reasons we uh, proposed this event in the first place. The first, I think, was uh, really as a result of Lord Hennessy's debate in the House of Lords on FOI and, and the transparency world and its impact on the public record. And the second, actually, is, was a request by one of our readers, who I don't think is here today. Oh, yes, absolutely. Richard is here today, on a wider view of the public record and some of the impact of FOI on the National Archives and archives more generally. So it was quite important to us that we have the chance to have that discussion. And so we have, um, I'm very pleased to um, have today uh, three speakers who have both a professional and a personal link with archives across the board. And also to say thank you very much for the friends for jointly helping us with today and, uh, um, and supporting the event. I am not going to introduce everyone. They will introduce in turn. But first I will um, introduce Lord McNally, who is both uh, our minister and a um, long-standing supporter of archives more generally. Thank you very much for coming, Lord McNally. And uh, um, I will hand over. Thank you, Oliver. I'm very pleased to be uh, back at the uh, National Archives. It's partly a, a tribute to uh, David Cameron and the uh, stability of his government because I'm now into my third year as uh, uh, Minister for the National Archives, uh, which is uh, quite good going. Uh, uh, poor John Reid had nine jobs in 13 years under Tony Blair, uh, but uh, David Cameron has resisted up to now, reshuffleitis, uh, and so it means that um, I, I, I'm very happy to be here again. It does mean, of course, I, I was at a meeting the other day and my civil service advisors came in and I said, we've now reached the really worrying stage for you civil servants. I said, I think I know as much about this as you do, uh, which is uh, never a comfortable thing uh, for... Uh, but it's also a privilege for me to introduce our uh, two speakers uh, this evening. Uh, Professor Lisa Jardine, I'm about to read some very distinguished criteria for why she's here tonight, but I also understand over a cup of tea before we came in and before he arrived uh, that she is part of a very distinguished double act, which... Uh, <laughs> Uh, with uh, Peter Hennessy, which goes back many years and uh, which has uh, its roots in uh, East London pub quizzes and such like. Yeah. Uh, Lisa is a CBE, is Centenary Professor of Renaissance Studies at Queen Mary College. Uni I still call it Queen Mary College, QMC in my day, but Queen Mary University of London and is the Director at Centre for Editing Lives and Letters. She is a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society, an Honorary Fellow of both King's College Cambridge and Jesus College Cambridge. Lisa also 
fairly recently became a non-executive director here at National Archives. Professor Peter Hennessy, now Lord Hennessy of Nymsfield, is aptly Professor of Contemporary British History, also at Queen Mary College, and is a Fellow of the British Academy. In his prior career as a journalist, he worked at the Times. At that time, I was working as a very junior official for the Labour Party, and my main memory of that was that the Times announced with great fanfare that they were appointing the first Whitehall correspondent, not a lobby correspondent, not a political correspondent, a lobby correspondent. And this new breed of journalist was going to talk face-to-face with the mandarins of Whitehall and bring to the readers of the Times the news hot from the corridors of power. And a day later, Harold Wilson announced any Mandarin fan talking to Peter Hensley <laughs> would be fired on the spot. Uh, it, was not, it was not the era of open government. <laughs> but Peter is also a fellow of the British Academy and... Um, is written for also for the Financial Times and The Economist, and is currently serving as the president of the, of the Friends of National Archives. I know that they both have enormously and long-standing affection for this institution, and, and I share this. I, 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 I am minister, uh, and it, it is by choice. When, when we first formed the coalition government, it was put to me that the range of responsibilities I have, uh, perhaps uh, I didn't uh, want to take on the National Archives, it might be uh, safely moved across from the MOJ to um, the Cabinet Office. And I resisted it because I, I have always felt the importance of archives in general and this National Archives as as a truly national treasure and it has given me great pleasure to be able to give uh, support to the National Archives over the last two years and to work with Oliver in uh, maintaining its worldwide reputation for excellence. Uh, apart from our formal connections, all three of us, I think, have personal links to the pl place. As a result of my earlier life working in Downing Street for James Callaghan, I actually feature in some of the files here in Kew. <laughs> that can be both a source of pride, sometimes a, a source of embarrassment. At the height of his powers, when John Prescott was Deputy Prime Minister, Kew rather helpfully, one January, re released... Uh, a note I'd sent to Jim Callaghan in response from a request from John Prescott, who was then a backbench member of the part, uh, of Parliament, uh, wanting a personal meeting with the Prime Minister. And my note to Jim said, don't do this, he's only grandstanding. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, which 30 years later, and John, then Prime, Deputy Prime Minister, it shows the, the dangers which might re-emerge with a vengeance once we have the 20-year rule. Um, for anyone involved in politics for a long time, the annual release of government records under the 30-year-old always carries a, a certain excitement, indeed a frisson. 
Uh, of course, today's ministers, civil servants and uh, advisers won't have so long to wait. We're at the National Archives this evening, uh, but I'd also like to pay tribute to archives more widely. It can't be stated often enough that archives are enormously valuable to our country, and in saying that I draw no distinction between local, regional or national archives, archives held privately and those in public hands. The archives of businesses, charities and religious groups and institutions. And I've expressed concern before that some of our great industrial giants of yesterday, uh, which had important archives in terms of our social history, um, it's very important that they're preserved. I'm thinking of the ICIs, the Pilkingtons, um, the Cadburys, etc. I know from experience that the supporters of our archives are tenacious and passionate and I hope I can reassure you that the government's commitment to archives is equally strong. This evening's discussion considers the silken paper trail, and I think this metaphor perfectly captures both the elusiveness of history and its physical fragility. Modern political history, at least our view of it, can sometimes turn on the discovery of a hitherto obscure memo or a handwritten note in the margins of a briefing paper or report. I'm sure that similar things hold true for earlier periods and other spheres. It's certainly one of the reasons why engaging with the actual physical stuff of history, particularly as kept in this building, can be such a rewarding experience. Given the wealth of paper record records already accumulated, about 180 kilometres on the shelves of the National Archives and counting, this experience will be available to researchers and historians for many years to come. But there will be a new trail to follow, because over the next 10 years we are moving from the 30-year rule to the 20-year rule, as I've said, and we will begin to see more and more newly available government records in digital formats. Of course, in the much longer term, virtually all of these will be digital. Now, I think this is an exciting moment, and perhaps we'll have a chance to discuss that later in the evening because technology has genuinely changed the way the business of government is carried out and the way that the business of government is recorded. Historians will need to learn new tricks to make sense of all this, cope with the scale of it, and learn to follow the digital trails. Our histories will turn on text messages or emails, providing, of course, that they have been kept seems most of them already are kept. Um, I don't know whether this will be as rewarding for historians or more frustrating, or perhaps both. It certainly will be fascinating to see. One last point from me to give a little political context for our discussions this evening. Alongside the move to a 20 euro, we have for the last two years been pursuing a transparency agenda, and this is overseen by Francis Maud at the Cabinet Office um, and Francis next week will be uh, launching uh, a white paper uh, taking forward uh, our thinking on in this area. We've made it a routine part of government business for departments and agencies to publish the day-to-day -day information and data that we, used, we use to inform our decisions and to provide our public services. Since we launched that agenda, more than 7,500 data sets have been made available. We've done this because we want to increase accountability and empower the public, and because we know that making public sector information available for reuse can foster innovation 
and promote economic growth. And it's worth stressing this point. The government, much more than any previous administration, is actively looking to release, reveal and disclose. It is working on a, pre a, a presumption in favour of openness. The question we ask is, why shouldn't we, not why should we? I think that's an extremely healthy and enlightened attitude for any government to take. So on to this evening's discussion, and it gives me great pleasure to ask Professor Hennessy to open our discussion. Professor the Lord Hennessy. Thank you, Tom, for that very generous introduction. I've been looking forward to this evening for all sorts of reasons, not just because I'm going to be with two great old mates, but because I'm going to be here, which is second home to me. I'll come back to that in a minute. The National Archives is, is without doubt, my favourite state institution, because it exists to help me pursue my private passion, which is writing the history of my own times, and to give me what I ask for, unlike so many other departments over the years. The occasional exception necessitated by some other department wanting to keep files unto themselves. But even in the days before we had the slightest whiff of open government, this was always a place of cornucopia and delight for me. And reverting to my two friends, they're very special to me. In Tom, we've got a minister who couldn't be more sympathetic to what we all believe in, our shared belief in the care and use of archives, very sympathetic to the historian's craft, and he's never said no to any of my research students who wanted to see him. And Tom is a very considerable exhibit, <laughs> a historical exhibit in his own person. And as he says, you never expect when you write these things in the heat of a crisis that one day they'll come out down here. Uh, I have my own mild version of this, which is the leak inquiries into me when I was on the Times now being declassified. And in this book I published last week, I've got a little chapter on becoming an item in the National Archives. <laughs> and Lisa has been a much-loved colleague at Queen Mary ever since I came down the Mile End Road in 1992. What is for sure, we're the pearly king and queen <laughs> of the Mile End Road. Now, the Silken Trail... Why is what's here and what happens to it so indispensable to both our cultural life as a nation and to the condition of our politics and government? First of all, the files released here are part of the accountability chain. Retrospective accountability is what Q offers. Very little is now held back longer than 30 years. And from next January, as Tom was explaining, we're going to get two years at a time extra until we've caught up to the new norm of 20 years. And public records policy, ladies and gentlemen, I think has always been a form of delayed freedom of information. And the 10-year reduction in the time lag is a very great step indeed. Great benefits flow from this provider function. The flow of paper, that silken thread of the state that slices into collective memory, helps prevent politicians and political parties from hijacking history to suit their partisan purposes. I'm not getting at Tom here because he's a man of my own era. It's what Melvin Bragg calls generational kinship, which is extremely powerful. But have you noticed, since the curse of postmodernism hit the Western world, how every political party has to have a vision and a narrative to support it? I'm, um, I'm very fond of the Millie Boys, but have you noticed that they are a combination of postmodern narrative and Blue Peter? <laughs> on which they were raised and next week we'll do well poverty then we'll sort out age you know, sort of faintly toe curling they're nice boys but they can't help it <laughs> and Tom and I and Lisa are way ahead of all I mean we're, we're really that hasn't touched us 
And Tony Blair was particularly good at this. Destiny politicians are always a pain, aren't they? But he was particularly good at all this. You know. Have you noticed that, um, some of you heard me might have said this recently, that Tony Blair's turned into Cliff Richard? <laughs> they are quite indistinguishable, a sort of permanent suntan and mid-Atlantic accent and all those movements for men younger than their age. It's very odd. Every time I see them, I can't distinguish between them. But there again, that's another confession because I'm amongst friends. Anyway, the politicians, you have to watch them because they are latter-day Leninists, you know. They like to pretend that the locomotive of history is working their way. It never is. never is. But anyway, here is the great antidote to it in queue, the paper trail. The great thing about a state which throws open its archives after a reasonable interval is that it creates the possibility of intellectual free trade for scholars and authors and any member of the public who cares to walk in through that front door and acquire a reader's card. I'm a fan of official histories, though I wouldn't want to write one myself, to be honest, but it's the serendipity, the sheer promiscuous interplay of, we hope, evidence-driven minds that really matters, the unofficial history of the nation. And this is refreshed, as Tom was describing, and as you all know, every January with the releases. And the journalists who come down and sit in this very room to do it sketch a swift first draft of what the new flow means, followed by the scholars and the researchers. And then the staff here are quite brilliant at facilitating this at the press previews, held not just in late December for the January release, but at intervals across the year. The material here, when you think about it, ladies and gentlemen, is frozen history. The journalists and then the scholars are cryogenicists. They warm up the pages until they twitch a bit, begin to breathe, and then they talk to you, and you can interrogate them. Of course, the treasures here are not enough on their own to enable recreation in the round of a year or an era. You need a plethora of sources, many of which are way beyond the reach of government. But here we have a paper trail of state activity, but even this cannot always be enough for accurate reconstruction. You need the survivors to help you. And I'll never forget when the 1954 files were declassified here under the 30-year rule. The memory of the Falklands War was still very vivid. And there's a 1954 Falklands file, Foreign Office file, which was too sensitive for them to release, but the Admiralty took a different view, the MOD, and out it came. And it was a meeting held to decide whether the Foreign Office should spend the usual amount of money to get the frigates down from the Caribbean squadron and the Royal Marines to protect the islands. Perron was president again and was making the usual noises. And in there was a minute from a civil servant, grade three, Philip Newell, I think he was called, which said, why did we this year, why didn't we just leave the squadron in the Caribbean and not send the Marines to see if the Argentinians are serious and see if Perron is going to have his go? Now, this is amazing stuff, you see. And the meeting was... Uh, chaired by Lord Reading, the Minister of State at the Foreign Office, and um, they decided that they would, as a result of this memo, that they would send the Caribbean squadron. So I rang up Philip Newell and I said, do you remember that extraordinary episode in '54 when you suggested that we shouldn't defend the Falklands for a year to see if the Argentinians were serious? He says, oh yes, I remember that. But it seems an extraordinary risk you were urging. He said, no, that was quite deliberate because we were getting to the point of no return for the money. And I put that in because I knew it would provoke a meeting. Uh, of which there'd be only one outcome. And so I'd been wildly misled by this extraordinary thing. He said, it's even worse than you thought. And I said, how could it be? He said, well, J.P.L. Thomas, the First Lord of the Admiralty, was asked by the Treasury representative where exactly the Falklands were. <laughs> so a chart was sent for, and J.P.L. Thomas, with complete self-confidence, drew a ring round St. Helena. <laughs> 
enough. So the files are never enough. But without this silk and paper trail at queue here as your starting point, as you know, because you do it as well as I do, as often as I do, if not more, we're nowhere as scholars without this paper trail. As you can see, I completely adore this place and, and what it does. And in fact, I plan to die here. And I, some of you might have been here the night in um, 2001 that Derry Irvin, then Lord Chancellor and Minister, came down to open the Education Centre. In fact, I can see some of you who were there. And I was here to open the Cold War archive on the side with Derry. And Derry had to rush back because it was just after the atrocity of 9-11 for a war cabinet meeting. And uh, Derry and I didn't know each other then as well as we've come to know each other since. And I think he was rather suspicious of me. He thought I was a bit brash and cheeky. It's hard to imagine why, but he did. <laughs> and uh, I said, Lord Chancellor, I'm so glad you're here because I plan to die here. And uh, I can tell you how it's going to happen. This is before the system changed. A file is going to come up in the catalogue the old written catalogue, which is going to explain the British Constitution, the mysteries of which I've been looking for all my life to be sorted out. And I shall be quite frail, and I'll wait with the bleeper, with mounting excitement. And because I won't be able to hear by then, the bleeper will throb. Do you remember the old bleepers that throbbed, in case you couldn't hear? And I shall go on my Zimmer frame, and there, onto, the, onto the table, and there will be a smiling friend from behind the counter with the file. And the excitement will be too much for me, I said to Derry. I will fall on my Zimmer... And the last thing I will see before the stroke that carries me away is my hand falling on the still unopened file, The Mystery of Tech. <laughs> Derry looked at me as if I uh, should be sectioned. And um, <laughs> what was really nice afterwards, because it was a great party, Derry only had time to have a little drink, and they got him particularly good wine for Derry because he's got a good palate. And some of you will remember we hit Derry's wine with tremendous relish afterwards. And uh, everybody was terribly warm and nice, as they always are, but even more so. And the, the offer was made by the National Archives, which the taxpayer shouldn't have to fund, that if my, when I do die, if the family agree that the taxidermist should be let, let loose on me and I'm stuffed, I can come down here and be put in a sack as an exhibit in the stacks <laughs> with my own tag, Goss One, Gossip One. <laughs> this was the deal that was done, as you can see... Derry was spared the detail. But anyway, Derry and I get on quite well now. But for all my love of Q and gratitude to those in the departments in Whitehall and here who care for the records, do I have worries? Well, I do, yes. It takes a considerable number of people following meticulous procedures to nurture and protect that silken trail. And at times of retrenchment, even with our great saviour Tom here, cutting back on the collective memory sections of the state is very tempting for ministers. It's hard to see what we need as a frontline service, though I think it is in terms of both national memory and helping keep the state clean and decent. I really do. Secondly, firefighting on freedom of information absorbs quite a chunk of the time of those who are indispensable to the proper working of the 30 and the 20 year rules. And there's no, no way other way of looking at it. I'm a freedom of information person but it does mean that resources have been immensely stretched since the 1st of January 2005 when FOI went active. Much thought has been and is being devoted here at Kew to the problems posed for the collective memory by electronic transformations of ever greater magnitude since the ancient mainframe computers creaked into life in the late 60s and early 70s. And my friends here tell me that I shouldn't worry as much as I perhaps do, that, that it's not going to be quite as perilous as we think. But I do worry about that. In last January's batch of files here, which dated from 1981, it's still the paper era then, predominating. Successive drafts 
of submissions with all the scribbles on the side enable us still to reconstruct the thinking process, which is terribly important to historians. And in my darker moments, I fear that in terms of today's records, we may be lucky if the final versions are kept, not the earlier scribbly equivalent ones, in a way that will be retrievable for us. I certainly don't see charging for entry here on the horizon. If it ever is, I shall rage about it, as we all will, for Q and its services, like the National Health Service, must remain free at the point of delivery, if for no other reason than the creation of these files was funded by the taxpayer, and in that the taxpayer as curious citizen, in other words, us, we, must be able to seek delayed accountability for those state activities so funded, however long the time lapse between their creation and them reaching Q. May I finish by expressing my heartfelt thanks to the staff of the National Archives and those in the departmental record sections who keep this huge and indispensable enterprise on the road. My students and I are hugely in your debt. I mean, generation, and, and my great colleague John Davis is at the back, generation after generation of Queen Mary students now have profited from this and, can, and do so in increasing numbers. We're linked by the umbilical cord of the district line, which, roughly speaking, takes a day and a half to get here. But, I mean, it's, it's still an umbilical cord to the Mylet Road. And we, we are terribly grateful. And the National Archives has been wonderful at indoctrinating our students to use the benign form of that verb into the archives every year. It's very rare for people in the records world, or anybody in Whitehall, really, to be honest, to receive the hosannas of a grateful nation. But receive them you should. You are and will remain critical to the sustenance of the Silken Trail and the national openness, which is absolutely essential to our democracy. I knew I was going to follow Peter, and so I decided... Well, first of all, I would have to give up on the jokes. Um, I'd have to give up on the anecdotes about governments between 1960 and now. But I thought that what I'd do was, therefore, to take a small item of, uh, of the archives um, and talk about them to you, um, largely because I'm going to tell you about a little bit of connecting up of documents. This is to try and remind you, as if you needed reminding anyone in this room, that the, the, the magic of that lovely image that uh, Peter gave of bringing the archives back to life and making them speak to you, when they speak, the connections they make are, as he already intimated, not necessarily the ones you expected, and the truth may not lie in a single archive, and it may only be the miracle of the way in which in this country, and because of TNA, because it now presides over all the archives nationally, the connecting up of the national archive and the regional archives and the preserving of them, which I must say 10 years ago I didn't believe we would be able to do, it is only going to be in those connections that we are actually going to arrive at truth. Now, I in my guise as a historian, work on the 16th and the 17th century. And for very many years, I worked here at the National Archives in those early records with teaching my students secretary hand and, um, and decoding and finding fragments and handling very fragile documents with great respect. Um, but in the last year... I've actually moved towards the contemporary archives because I am the daughter of Jacob Bronowski, who some of you will recognize um, from that image on the screen. And uh, I have become enmeshed in the documents which, when my mother died in 2010, I was finally able to 
reconnect the ones that she had kept at home with ones that were in uh, his archive, which at that point, I've come back to that, was at the, in the University of Toronto. Um, and I've begun working on a memoir, which is um, tentatively, and I think probably permanently entitled, Jacob Bronowski, Things I Never Knew About My Father. And what I'm going to tell you about in these few minutes tonight is uh, a connection, um, is the connections I'm making as a result of TNA releasing last year, in the, at the beginning of last year, my father's MI5 file. That didn't come under the 30 years rule, that was just part of the, 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 the from time to time release of MI5 files. And uh, his, the first volume of the two volumes of my father's MI5 file um, is actually available uh, digitally online, free to you on the National Archives. So if you're interested in this story, um, you can go and take a look. And I am currently obsessed with that file um, because I have to tell you that I am fairly sure that although my father, like many men of his generation and women, uh, will have uh, expected they had such a file, had no real knowledge of his MI5 file. Um, and it's come as an absolute shock to me because it's a huge file and it consistently claims him as a communist and a, and a likely spy, all the way through to the 1960s when he left this country. So uh, I can't, of course, tell you the whole story, and you'll have to wait until I finish this book, um, which is going to take quite a long time. I'm sorry, don't, don't, it really is. I'm at the beginning of this. But uh, the beginning of the story is in Hull, where my father held his first job as a university lecturer. He went as a young university lecturer in mathematics in 1934 to Hull, and he remained in Hull um, until he began uh, doing war work and moved away um, in 1940, early, the early 1940s. Um, this is how he looked in those early years, dashing. Um, <laughs> But one of the stories from home that I knew, this is actually 1937, the year he married my mother, is that in 1939 he shaved off that beard because of being regularly um, stopped by the police in that, in that flurry of anxiety about spies. Um, he looked like a spy. So he, uh, he shaved off that, uh, that beard. But in, in March 1939... A school teacher in Hull, whose name has been redacted from the record, wrote first to the Home Office, and the Home Office forwarded his, um, his letter to the constabulary in Hull, uh, to say that my father was certainly a, um, a firebrand revolutionary, that he was a, a Polish Jew, that he was clearly suspect, <coughs> that he didn't respect the country or the crown, that he was agitating amongst the students in the mathematics department. Um, uh, I find that slightly hard to believe. And that he probably was a Russian spy. And there followed a rather comical, were it not in the end rather tragic, series of documents from the Hull Constabulary, which Peter would do with accents, um, about the Hull PC plod sitting at the back at various, of various meetings of the Hull Literary Society, where my father used to read his poetry, and PC Plot at the back of the room not being able to hear very well, but being pretty damn sure that this poetry was subversive. <laughs> but the, what I'm pulling out, because I don't want to take too much time this evening, what I've pulled out from the record is one document 
um, because I'm going to use, I'm just going to refer to a point in this document where I began to really worry that my father was not as clean cut as I had thought. By the way, my father never belonged to the Communist Party, although his mother did. Um, and he, I'm pretty sure, was never a Russian spy. Um, but the point about the record is that it consistently says he is a party member and it consistently says that he's consorting with communists. Um, uh, but in the middle of this, and you won't be able to read it from the back, and of course, because I have... Oh, yes, I can read it here. Of course I can. Um, if You can't read it from the back, and I apologise. Uh, this comes out of the record, four paragraphs up, five paragraphs up, it says. On the 16th of May, 1939, he completed an application form as a voluntary worker in the air raid warden scheme at Hull. He did not, however, attend any of the lectures or make further inquiries concerning enrolment. The following month, he was asked by letter to report at the ARP office, Ferensway Hull, so that arrangements might be made for him to attend the lectures. He replied that he would not be available until October 1939. Now, I read it in that tone of voice because the whole of this letter is about things that my father is doing that make it perfectly clear he's a communist and a spy, right? And having en enrolled as an air raid warden and not followed up on it is clearly suspect, although anybody from any university who's in this room will know that to call him for training in the middle of August when you're at work in Hull but your home is in London... Um, is not surprisingly not going to elicit a very positive response. By the way, those were the days when we were allowed to take the long vacations off, right? And I read this and I sort of, for some reason, it lodged in my mind um, until I matched it up with a document that I also had courtesy of the Hull Records Office. Thanks indeed to Martin Taylor of the, of the Hull Records. And look, what is this? This is his air raid warden's uh, file, it says, and this one you probably can see, that he was trained, but of course he was trained after that letter was sent, which has lodged on the MI5 file, and says that he was obviously dissident because he didn't go for his training. He was trained in anti-gas, and he was trained in whatever GCDOMBIB is. I'm sure, I'm sure Tom can tell me that. Uh, he was allocated to post on the 20th of May, 1940. He had a bad issue, badge issued in July, a card of, is, of appointment issued, um, and he did indeed serve uh, as an air raid warden until he moved, removed to Cottingham six months later. Now, I only just put those two funny little records next to one another in order just to show you that if I had the former but not the latter, um, and I can only put them together because it is so wonderful these days that you can put together the records from Hull and the records from TNA, um, I would indeed have believed that my father had joined up in order to prove he was a good citizen and then done nothing about it. In fact, he served in the archives. I don't know, for some, I mean, doesn't look to me as if it's impressing you as much as it impressed me, but this is just one little item from my, the records I'm looking at. And then I just wanted to finish by just showing that's my father and myself in the same sort of, of period. But I have a coda to this little um, uh, sortie into connecting up the archives, which is that this very day, and I did not... Uh, I did not um, contrive this. Um, my father's archive has just been moved to Jesus College, Cambridge from Toronto. It should never have been in Toronto. And a couple, wonderful couple of American philanthropists called Dan and Joanna Rose in New York City have paid for the uh, archive to be installed at Jesus College and have paid for all the putting in of all the equipment that will be needed to keep it at the right temperature um, at Jesus College, Cambridge. Uh, they were close friends of my parents. Uh, they are now in their very late 80s, so they were 
uh, 20 years younger um, than my father, very close friends. It was at their house in East Hampton that he died. Um, and the night that he died, they had been writing limericks around the dinner table. And Joanna had told me about this many times. Uh, as I say, she's in her late 80s, and she forgot what she'd done with his limericks. And today I received a FedEx parcel from New York, um, which is the limericks, which I haven't even really read yet. Actually, this is terrible. I should probably be wearing gloves to handle them. <laughs> um, but one doesn't when they're one's own. So this is a set of papers dated the 20th of August, 1974, which is the date on which he died, uh, East Hampton, and I'll read you just one of the limericks so that this will now go into the Jesus archive. But I really wanted to read, just to mention it to you, in order there are philanthropists out there alongside our governments and we really need to keep going to them. They are people who also believe in preserving the record. Um, the, the, um, the Roses have put many thousands of pounds into this enterprise. It's just a simple little matter of installing somebody's archives where they belong in a Cambridge college where he was a fellow. A Harvard logician called Quine, though addicted to women and wine, was chagrined to discover that Russell, as lover, packed the aisles from the Charles to the Rhine. <laughs> and there are some much dirtier ones. <laughs> I'll just read you the Freddie Air one for those of you. That lighter-than-air balloon Freddie thinks the air of philosophy heady. Since his head and his heart are light years apart, what Freddy calls heady means beddy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, all of you. Uh, Minister Lord Hennessy. Um, and Professor Lisa Jardine. Thank you very much all. Thank you for coming. This podcast was recorded live on the 22nd of June 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.